Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of the Blackware Intelligence YouTube channel. Today we have a very special guest, crypto trader and one of my favorite Twitter personalities slash accounts, BitHedge. BitHedge, thank you so much for coming on the show, man. Happy to speak with you. Hey, thanks for having me. I'm, I'm happy to be on here. Before we uh, kind of dive into the meat of the conversation, let's first kind of give people a background on who you are and uh, kind of what got you into the space and what do you do now? Yeah, sure. So nowadays I'm, I'm trading crypto full time. Uh, just a couple of years ago, pretty, pretty early on in high school, I got into, uh, into the stock market and, you know, just, I would just kind of punt around on, on Robinhood at first before that got really big, just, you know, buy like some Microsoft, Amazon calls, stuff like that. Nothing too complex, but I was, I get really into the stock market over the course of, of two or three years and I get into college and um, in college, I majored in software engineering, but really started to kind of spend all my time looking into markets. Um, seeing that as my main interest and then kind of late to the train compared to a lot of people in 2020, I, you know, first got into crypto. I think I bought my first Bitcoin at like 12 K. So not a stellar entry compared to some people, but um, yeah, I started getting really into crypto and I started joining a few telegram group chats and, and join discussions on Twitter. And I decided to make my own page where I'm going to start to share some of my thoughts and all that. And, you know, I was just really kind of impressed with how, you know, how open and more exciting space is compared to like traditional markets. Um, and there was all these, you know, there was so much kind of edge that used to be in traditional markets that I would read about that's just gone now, unfortunately, because it's so developed. But you come into crypto and, you know, there's, there's just, it's just really, it's way more exciting and, and there's way more opportunity being in such a new space. Um, so like I said, I, you know, I hopped on Twitter, I share thoughts. Um, I ended up being reached out to by the co-founders of Glassnode and I was really happy to work there for a while. Um, and then a few months ago, I switched over to a role at an options market making desk. And um, that's where I am now. Awesome. So I do want to first like touch on your experience at Glassnode. What was that like? Kind of what was your role there, and uh, what were some of the kind of the, the you know biggest takeaways from working at Glassnode? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. It was a really nice place. I was, you know, it was bittersweet to only there for like six or seven months, like I did, because um, I got along really well with everyone there. It's, you know, I kind of like I like the research side of markets as much as I do trading. Um, so my role there was pretty much uh, all writing software. I I spec'd out a lot of the um, like the prototypes and the uh, the details for a lot of the new derivative stuff they added, uh, like you know they they added implied volatility, futures basis stuff like that. This year I did a lot of work on that while I was there, um, and yeah, basically just you know spec out what I think would be good metrics to add. I you know a couple dozen metrics I got done while I was there, and I would hand them over to the uh, production team. They would put them in a production, and that was that. It was really fun. That's really cool. Do you have any strong opinion on Anche data? I do see that a lot of your posts kind of revolve around derivatives data, but is that something that you kind of incorporate into your analysis? And the reason I ask is because of the kind of relationship with Glassnode, uh, or is that something that's not really at the forefront of the way you analyze the market? Yeah, well, yeah, definitely Glassnode, like the on-chain, like general. Um, I think, 
especially recently, a lot of people have been kind of quick to write off on-chain stuff. Um, I don't know, I think as with any kind of analysis, um, there's always gonna be 20 bullish things you can show and like 20 bearish things you can show. Um, I think maybe on-chain kind of got not like a great rep recently just because, you know, there's tons of metrics and some of them are good and some of them are not so good. But a lot of people don't really understand them completely. Um, and then, you know, if they are to see that, oh, this one on-chain metric didn't work this time, I'll just write off the whole category. Um, but I think, you know, I think you could consider stuff like, um, you know, like DeFi liquidations and and stuff on Etherscan as, as on-chain too, even though people kind of traditionally just think about Bitcoin as on-chain. Um, if you expand it to stuff on Ethereum too, I think it's really helpful. And even some of the main metrics, like, you know, if the supply of Bitcoin on exchanges now is like 30% lower than it was a couple months ago, that's just, you know, I think you'd have to be crazy to say that doesn't, that isn't worth knowing. There's definitely useful things uh, that you can get from on-chain. But it's not my not my main area. Yeah, I'm more more into derivatives just because I've I guess I'm just more interested personally in them, so I've been able to learn more about them easier. Yeah, that makes that makes a lot of sense, and I tend to agree. I think a lot of the kind of nuance gets missed just because it is such a new form of analysis. So a lot of things kind of get lost in translation, and you know, on Twitter you tend to just not be able to translate all the nuance that you'd like to because you need to keep things like super concise. So yeah, I, I, I agree with pretty much everything you said there. Uh, transitioning a little bit to derivatives, um, what is some of the, like the, or I guess what sectors of the derivatives market do you pay most attention to? Or I guess what do you find most important there? Sure. Well, yeah, definitely um, as far as, you know, actual trading myself and, and what I'm looking at day to day, I look more at options than futures. Um, there's definitely a big, you know, there's a lot of kind of misunderstanding around options in the crypto space. I think mostly because, you know, obviously everything is new in crypto, but up until last year, you know, everyone just kind of traded perpetual futures and, and that's it. Um, options are interesting, um, certainly. And I think they do. I think some people uh, have this have this view of, well, there's, def there's definitely a signal you can pull from them. Um, but like at this time, at least, they're not a large enough part of the market to consider the like second order effects of people's positioning on them to be a huge, you know, driver of short-term price action. Um, in terms of like day-to-day -day stuff, and I watched your uh, interview with CL last week, that was really good. Um, a lot of stuff that he looks at, he's my, he's like my personal favorite derivatives trader, just, you know, stuff that you guys were talking about. Um, I think there's a lot, a lot of signal day-to-day and kind of trying to identify what you think a crowded trade is and taking the opposite side of that is kind of my main thesis, I would say, because when people are trying to get into positions calmly, it's really a lot less violent. And there's a lot less opportunity versus when people have to get out of positions because it's usually, you know, they're, they're panicking or they're being forced to get out of positions. Um, so as far as derivatives go, I, you know, I trade options mostly, but I, I like to look at futures stuff like funding, open interest, uh, CVD sometimes, um, and occasionally, you know, order book heat maps will give you a little bit of light to be able to see what's going on there. Cause I think, I think that's where I can get a lot of edge intraday is, is kind of catching people off sides on futures, I would say. 
That makes a lot of sense. And just for context, what's kind of your average time frame for every trade you're making? Is it like an intraday thing or is it kind of like on a week-to-week basis? What's kind of your average time frame on, on all sure. your trades? Yeah, lately I've been trying to get a little bit more into intraday just because I don't know. A lot of people tell me they feel like there's a lot more opportunity in that. Maybe, maybe it's true, but mostly I'd say I hold trades for between like two and 10 days. Makes sense. Uh, I feel like that's really important to kind of establish for, for people to understand context, I guess. Um, when we talk about options, a lot of our audience isn't really familiar with options. And to be quite frank, I'm not either. I just got out of a book on options last week that I read like two chapters of. So can, yep. without turning this conversation into a full-on options 101 course, can we talk about what are some of the basic things in the options market that, that you check? Or I guess like a way to kind of frame this question would be, when you wake up in the morning and you're trying to see what's going on overnight that perhaps you miss, like what's kind of that mental checklist that you go through to understand what's going on in the options market? Sure. Yeah. So the first one that I guess probably more people know than, than any other, even though it's not totally understood is just, you know, at the money implied volatility for crypto options. The way to think about implied volatility um, when it comes to options is that that is the only you know measure of supply and demand because when you're pricing an option you know you have the strike price the price of the underlying when it expires and none of that is actually up for debate you know what i mean that's like set in stone so when a you know when supply and demand comes into play in an option it gets expressed in the implied volatility um and so you can look at the at the money like a lot of people do and i like to look at um Levitas. I'm not even sure if that's how you pronounce it, but they're good. They're good friends of mine. I always mess um, it up too. <laughs> yeah, that website. Uh, and then, you know, it's on SKU and Glassnode now too and, and Gvol. Um, and that at the money metric just kind of gives you an idea of general volatility expectations in either direction because um, it's, you know, it's, it's not necessarily upside or downside options. Um, and a great, probably the best signal you can take from there, in my opinion, is is the differences in uh, in different terms of that? You know, when I say that, I mean, is the one week vol higher than the one month vol? And if that's the case, you know, there's usually a good bit of FOMO or panic going on in the market. That's a really good sign, um, in my opinion. And then second, you can go and look at something called the skew, which is basically just the difference in the implied volatility, which, like I said, is just supply and demand. Um, on upside options versus downside options. And that single metric, you know, gets you most of the way there and identifying whether or not people are, you know, demanding bullish options or demanding bearish options. Um, and that's a pretty good sentiment indicator, in my opinion. You know, like I said, it's it's not a, as much about catching people off sides and options as it is on futures. Um, it's more just better to, you know, have an idea of, of what's going on and and see the see the flows. A lot of people tend to think that options are more like smart money. Like when you see people take a huge short uh, in futures, everyone's like, "Oh, you know, fade this, squeeze them." But if someone's buying like a huge amount of puts, people usually start getting bearish about it on my timeline. It's it's kind of funny the difference. Um, but I don't know. Yeah, those two metrics at the money implied volatility and skew. You know, if you're just like kind of trying to want to add a little bit of basic options, you know, knowledge into what you're checking, you can just look at those two and get an idea of, you know, general volatility expectations and general, 
you know, whether that is for upside or downside expectations. How do you see the kind of evolution of the options market um, moving forward? And I guess kind of to piggyback off of that, what has held back the growth of the options market? Like, I guess, why, you know, why hasn't the options market been, uh, I guess, as, as, as large as I kind of would think it would be at this point? Um, for, for some people that I talk to that are much you know, smarter than me in this, in this sector, um, they say it's kind of some of the pricing of the options, for example, on like a Ledger X versus a Deribit. Is it like a regulatory thing? Um, so to kind, of, to kind of summarize, I know I've jetted a little bit all over the place. What has held back the growth of the options market and what's kind of going to uh, draw in growth for it moving forward over the next couple of years as more institutions come in? Yes, yeah, certainly. Like like you said, a lot is, is kind of the, um, the hesitancy to be on an exchange like Deribit, which is you know, pretty much like a top-notch crypto exchange um, compared to everything else. But a lot of these institutions just aren't necessarily comfortable um, on like anything besides like Coinbase at this point is what it is what it seems like to me. Um, and then you're right in saying, you know, you should you should expect options to be a larger part of the market. If you look at like options volumes versus underlying volumes in the stock market nowadays, there's like more volume in options. It's it's wild. Um, and then obviously in crypto. It's, you know, like a single single digit percent. Um, I think the regulatory stuff is something back. And then on the retail side, uh, you know, a big part of options now in, in traditional markets is retail. I think just the fact that, you know, if you're looking for for leverage, which I think I think most of retail that traded options doesn't necessarily have a nuanced view um, that they want to express. You know, in terms of time and volatility they're more just looking to lever up their bet directionally and you have perks and crypto which you, you know which aren't really uh, in traditional markets you know nobody really goes 100x long on you know td ameritrade it's just it's a much it's a much different array of, of things that's available to you in crypto so i think that offers all the leverage needs and i think for the class of trader that's looking for more nuanced stuff there's some hesitation to to trade on the, the currently available um, exchanges. But it's definitely growing. And if you look at like, if you look at growth at like Genesis, um, a lot of the OTC stuff too, they did like, you know, it was like a 500% increase year over year in options volume. It's pretty huge, it's heating up. Um, and I think the crypto market almost kind of lends itself to options trading for these institutions because maybe you want to have some exposure, but you know, structure their payout a certain way since it's so much more volatile than what they're used to holding. Makes sense. And with that kind of like growth of options over time, how do you think, uh, I guess, market structure will evolve? For example, you see a lot of people talking about like max pain around, you know, certain options expiries at the end of month. Um, do you think as kind of the, the volumes around uh, certain options expiries, like as that grows, will you see uh, that actually have more weight to it because for some of the people I talk to they say that yeah like in theory you know max pain for example is a valid thing to be looking at but because of the size of the options market now it's kind of negligible uh, I guess what are your thoughts on on how that will kind of like affect market structure moving forward yeah I definitely agree that max pain is not really anything worth looking at in this point in time um I don't think it'll ever really be anything worth looking at 
is my opinion is that it doesn't make too much sense to me, even when the volumes are there. Um, largely because the formula revolve, you know, the formula makes the assumption that, you know, the max payment that you're calculating, which is supposedly for, you know, retail, is that all the options bought or all the option open interest bought to open. You know, and we know that's obviously not the case. You can sell options to open. So that, you know, that assumption that it that it less that it uh, lays on kind of makes it a non-starter for me. Um, I think when in doubt too, I think Tony Stewart um, on Twitter is a really good page. He writes for Derivative Insights about options. Um, I've heard his take on it. He seems to think it's not really a, a factor as well. Um, I defer to him sometimes for, for option stuff. That's a good name to know. He's definitely really knowledgeable. Um, and then as far as when stuff grows, I do think there's some really interesting effects that can come, um, you know, just through the, you know, the hedging of the underlying um, when market makers will sell or buy an option, right? Uh, like what's happened in Tesla and a lot of the meme stocks over the last couple of years where you just see these like absurd call volumes. And what happens is, you know, if somebody buys a call and a market maker sells it, the market maker is just there to collect the bid ask spread, right? So he doesn't actually want to be short that call. So, um, so they have to go and they have to hedge it out with the actual shares. And, you know, if in some cases, uh, you know, it kind of goes into a feedback where the higher this underlying goes, the more shares have to be bought by the market maker. And then that feeds into itself over and over. And that's a dynamic that I've spent a lot of time trying to evaluate in crypto. I don't think it's huge yet, but if the uh, you know, volumes keep growing, I'll totally be looking for, for some spillover kind of uh, delta and, and gamma hedging effects because no doubt that can have a very a very big impact on markets. And it's one of the main drivers of, of traditional markets right now. What is a gamma squeeze? Um, maybe for some people listening to this, they're a bit more sophisticated. They might kind of cringe at that question, but it's something you, you, you've heard a lot over the last year, especially after you know, the whole like GameStop AMC thing. Um, I guess, wh what does that mean? And like, where are the dynamics actually going on when that occurs? Sure, yeah. Yeah, so a gamma squeeze is kind of what I just talked about, um, wherein... So a market maker, you know, say somebody buys a call, a market maker sells that call. Um, and then that option has a property, you know, where for every dollar that the underlying moves that, you know, that option changes a certain amount, the value of it changes a certain amount. Um, and the Greek called the gamma, which is, you know, where obviously it comes from is the measure of how much, um, how much kind of underlying the option is equivalent to for each each one dollar change in the underlying. So say a strike is at one hundred dollars for an option and the underlying is at like, like, like ten dollars, you'll have a very small, you know, kind of chance of that expiring in the money. And the Greek called the delta will be very low. And that delta is how much underlying is is kind of represented by that option, if that makes sense. Um, and then the farther you go to add the money, the higher that gamma goes and the higher that delta goes. And so you get in a position where, you know, price moves up a dollar. If you have huge volumes, market makers have to buy, you know, a huge amount of shares and then they push it up another dollar themselves doing that. And then they have to buy more because it just got pushed up. 
So it's that kind of like reflexive loop that I described where, you know, due to the way that an options value changes, market makers can be put in a position where they have to buy when price goes higher and sell when price goes lower. And sometimes it's large enough those effects that, you know, that in itself will just, you know, throw gasoline on the fire and, and moves get much bigger. No, that, that makes a lot of sense. Um, so we, we talked a lot about uh, options. I kind of want to pivot briefly to futures and some of the things that you look at there, particularly in the perpetual swap market. Uh, what are some of the metrics that you look at uh, that you find most important, uh, whether it be kind of like quarterlies or just perps in specific? And then uh, I guess I'm throwing this kind of a two-part question. Also, what do you look at in terms of uh, like order flow? Because you talked briefly about like CVD as well as you look at kind of what's going on in the order book. So what do you look at uh, in terms of order flow and, and the futures? Sure, yeah. The, I mean, the main thing, for futures that probably most people would agree on um, is you want to know kind of how much open interest is in the market. And for every you know position on open interest, there's of course both a long and a short side, but that doesn't mean that one side isn't going to be more aggressive um, and more vulnerable to closing their position or getting liquidated than the other. Um, so you can kind of take a combination of, of open interest and, and funding rates and you know, recently, funding rate has been getting like a little bit of pushback from some people because it's certainly, you know, it's correct that it certainly is not binary. If funding is negative, that doesn't mean everyone's short. It could just mean that somebody is, you know, buying a lot on a different exchange. But in my, you know, from what I've seen, if you are to see open interest jump, you know, rapidly on a specific contract, it jumps twenty or thirty percent, and during that time you know, uh, funding is is going kind of negative, almost like linearly as that position gets put on. I think that's a pretty good sign that that position is a short position. Um, so I tend to kind of look more at changes in open interest and changes in funding rate than their absolute values. And I think by combining by combining just those two, you can get kind of pretty far on, on gauging the state of, of what's going on. Um, Although, like I said, you know, it's it's never an exact science. It's it's hard to know with with certain accuracy. Um, and then CBD and and kind of order order flow and and order books are pretty interesting too. I mean, these are examples of kind of where you can get you know a lot of certainty in someone's positioning. So you know, say Bitcoin is trading and you're looking at an order book and there's an ask for you know a hundred Bitcoin right above price and you watch price go up to that ask and then open interest moves up, you know, for hundred Bitcoin at that point in time, you know, for a fact that was a short. Um, so you can kind of use that in confluence there. Um, and then same with, you know, CBD is kind of, is kind of tough too, because it's also, you know, can be a little bit misleading. CBD can be going like absolutely vertical and you might think, oh, that exchange is really bullish. Um, but it could just be the case that somebody has a bunch of limit sale orders in and CBD is just having to eat away through that. Um, so I do think kind of, you have to take all those things in conjunction. You know, if you're able to both look at the order book at CBD um, and then kind of watch how open interest evolves as different orders are either filled or, you know, pulled if they were spoofs and look at kind of changes in funding rate that come at the same time as changes in, in open interest. 
I think you can get a pretty good idea of of what a crowded position is. And you know, the hard part is figuring out when to take the other side of that because you know, you know, obviously long Bitcoin was crowded in you know February and March, but it was too early to start shorting. Um, so you know, this that's just the first part is identifying you know what side you think is crowded, but I think using those four indicators in confluence, um, you can do pretty well. Makes a lot of sense. And you talked briefly about um, confluence there. So kind of segues into my next question, which is how do you tie into or tie together the options market and the futures market? What things do you look for in confluence between the two? Are there certain patterns that you kind of recognize over your time trading that kind of indicate certain things to you when you see, you know, two, I guess, confluence across both of those things? Sure. Yeah. Yeah, totally. I mean, like I was saying earlier, um, and you'll see this whenever price, I mean, we haven't seen it in a while um, when price is going up because there hasn't really been kind of super mania since, you know, maybe a little bit in November. And then before that, it was it was last spring. Um, but when the, you know, when the front dated vol uh, volatility, when the one week vol is, is higher than the one month, the three month, you know, that's basically telling you that there's a higher expectation, you know, for volatility in the in the ensuing, you know, in the imminent time frame. Um, and if price is going, you know, if price has just nuked, then that's the pretty good, you know, signal that we've got a pretty panicked market on our hands versus, you know, say price is grinding down, say price is down a couple grand in a few days, but volatility is kind of unbothered, then, you know, it's just probably the case that it's just kind of a depressed market. It's not necessarily a panicking market. Um, and then same with the skew, as I was talking about earlier, if, if you see skew, you know, go in the direction that people are paying up for downside options far more than upside options, you know, good panic indicator. Um, and we saw this extremely um, strongly last spring. People were paying up huge for call options or put options. Um, you know, it was like an up, you know, a call like a thousand dollars over the price or a couple thousand dollars over the underlying price would have an implied volatility that was like 10 or 20% higher than a put that was a few thousand below the Bitcoin price. So just like something that kind of, you know, from a true, from someone who believes markets are efficient and a random walk, it's like, oh, that doesn't make any sense. Um, and, you know, all it shows you is that people are really kind of chasing for upside. Um, and so you take those two into effect, you, you take those two into account um, and kind of think about, Funding rates, like we talked earlier, funding rate is super high and, you know, call skew is, is super high and implied volatility is super high. You know, this is a leverage market that's that's chasing stuff to the upside period. Um, and then, you know, say you see, uh, say you see funding rate super negative, I guess. Um, it might, you might want to look for confluence in that people are paying up for puts heavily, which they are right now. Um, Funny enough, that's kind of definitely something that's going on right now is the Pusky recently. Um, there was a good post this morning too. Someone posted on Twitter. It's that's definitely something to keep in mind is, you know, recently extremely sentiment is, has shifted to the downside in the options market. Um, but yeah, to combine them, you know, just like I said, the, the term structure and the skew are, are just those two other indicators that you can use. And it's like, okay, when, when this lines up and this lines up and this lines up, you know, using all that array of like five or six different indicators I just talked about, 
then you can be pretty damn sure that you have a good reading on on the market's positioning. Yeah, it's, it's interesting you say that because as well, when you look at like the premium between like spot and derivatives, that's been negative for as of today, two months. Over the last like two weeks, it's gone pretty heavily negative. So definitely seeing some uh, bearish sentiment in aggregate, uh, I guess. It has, and that's, I'm, I think, I think you saw my my post a while ago about that massive buildup of, of open interest on Binance, which is really interesting because, I mean, I could have, you know, it, it looked to me just because, because the premium, you know, the spots at Earth's premium have been negative while that was built, that that looked to be largely shorts. And I, I still think it leans more short than anything, but we failed to wipe it out when we went over 53K in the winter. Um, but then, you know, on the flip side, we're like $20,000 lower now and it's still just as high. So I'm not, I'm not, you know, it's, it doesn't seem to be a very, a very leveraged buildup of open interest. So that's something to keep in mind is that while a lot of, you know, kind of things will scream that this is a very leveraged market because of that massive buildup. And I kind of believed it was at one point too. I think the failure to react, um, you know, to the different changes we've seen in price over the last month, make it clear that, you know, perhaps this really isn't a, an over leveraged market in either direction right now. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. I was surprised as well when we kind of remember we were in that range between like 42 and 45 ish. And then we, I'm sorry, 42 and uh, 52. And we kind of like swept the upper end of the range. We didn't quite go clear 53. I think we just hit the like Santa rally. It got every, it got yeah. me bullish. It tripped everyone. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I was, I was really surprised not to see uh, more open interest get wiped out on that move. I still wonder if we had cleared 53, which we've seen more licks. I don't know. It's, it's easy to kind of say that that would have happened, but uh, yeah, it, it, I definitely uh, was paying attention to a lot of that stuff as well. And, and agree with you. Um, Moving on to just like current market structure, what are your thoughts on where we are now, uh, as well as kind of the the current macro environment that we're sitting in, and uh, what do you think that means for Bitcoin over the coming year? Sure. Yeah, like what I kind of just touched on, and you know, it doesn't really seem like the market is is super like screaming over leveraged in either in one direction or the other right now. Um, certainly, you know, we've kind of seen pretty pretty solid capitulation on a lot of the previously frothy altcoins that are down, you know, 70%. When they're down 70%, it's, you know, anyone who was leveraged from the top is obviously long gone. Um, so we've got a lot of froth out of the way. Um, and the near term for Bitcoin, you know, as I'm sure everyone kind of thinks or knows and everyone's talking about it now is just kind of what the S&P 500 does, I guess, to some degree. Everyone's always watching that day and I think the divergences that happen sometimes are pretty interesting. You know, it's pretty obvious if if the S and P 500 is making lower lows throughout a day and Bitcoin's making higher highs, then maybe as soon as the New York session closes, we're going to get a leg up on Bitcoin, and that's been the case a lot of the time. Um, I think in the very near term, like the next month, I really just think we kind of continue to stay in this in this range that we've been in, in the low to in the mid 30 Ks. Um, because it, what's going on in macro is, is interesting. I think, you know, everyone's talking about how the Fed is going to hike rates and how that's extremely bearish or whatever. But, you know, obviously so much of that is already priced in. Um, and it just kind of is, is a question of how things play out in the coming six months with like inflation prints. Um, 
and other things that the Fed watches because, you know, what's interesting is there's a lot of people who call that, you know, inflation is here to stay and bond yields are too low or whatever. But I mean, inflation is measured as the year over year changed, right? So when we have these huge prints that we've seen in the last year or so, based off of what I think is largely kind of supply chain problems, um, I think we might even speak this, you know, I think we're going to see CPI and all the stuff like that decelerate in the coming months. Um, and I think the narrative very quickly might, might change from, you know, the Fed is going to hike too fast over to, you know, we're in an economic slowdown, I guess, um, because the whole kind of cycle, right, from the initial COVID crash boom, and now kind of the turnover has just been so accelerated that it, it makes sense to me that the good times are not going to last years and years. You know, if we've just been kind of in, in a market cycle on steroids for the past two years, if that makes sense. Um, so for now, I'm just, I'm just sitting back and, and watching uh, for the next month. I want, to see, I want to see kind of inflation decelerate. I think the stock market is going to do kind of well now just because of great the concentration is obviously in these like five fang stocks that people kind of underestimate, um, you know, that they're literally just the best companies in the world. So if you're going to, you know, if you want to buy companies that you think are going to be safe havens, then you just buy, you know, you buy Microsoft, you buy Apple, um, you buy Facebook up until yesterday when it got wrecked. Uh, but, you know, I don't see a lot of downside in the S&P 500, but I think, I think it definitely needs to go up in order for Bitcoin to do well in the near future. And I'm not going to say I think it, it does very well. I'm, I'm pretty neutral for the next month. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, I guess my, my kind of base case has been in terms of like breaking out of this really tight correlation with S&P. Like if you look at something like the correlation coefficient, which I, I do on TradingView, I mean, it's been like the tightest block of correlation or like most prolonged block of tight correlation with, with the S&P for a while now. And uh, totally. I, I agree with you. I think either you're going to need to see you know, the S&P start to rally off these lows, which allows Bitcoin to just trade as kind of that high beta, you know, risk on asset. Or if we get some type of, you know, catalyst that's going to draw in like some type of idiosyncratic flows, but we haven't had anything like that. So I think people are looking, as you said, as either just looking at the S&P or looking at what FANG stocks are doing and they're saying, okay, well, you know, this is what I'll base, you know, I'll, I'll trade intraday off of because there's not really any other flows that are coming into BTC. So, you know, there's a, there's a potential, I guess this is uh, definitely some hopium, but if we can get some type of catalyst, such as we've got, you know, rumors of Russia looking to mine Bitcoin, Intel with their mining chips, you know, Microsoft and uh, Apple both talking about the metaverse, you know, there's a lot of, or like an oversubscription to the El Salvador bond would be another one. I think, you yep. know, there's some potential catalysts maybe, but until we see that, I, I, I think it's difficult to make a case for breaking out of that, that correlation. I would agree. And I think there's no reason to try to rush it. You know, I think when that catalyst comes or when that God candle comes, it's going to kind of break us out of what's going on. I think it'll be very obvious. Um, and so I agree with you on all, on all those things. Um, definitely, you know, even just grayscale, not buying like $3 billion of Bitcoin every week for months straight right now is honestly might be the, the biggest single thing that has stopped us from growing logarithmically, right? We, we obviously hit a new all-time high in, in November, but, you know, when Bitcoin really kind of went from, you know, when Bitcoin did a 5X or a 6X, it was 
you know, it was, it was all, there was just so much flow from Grayscale for MicroStrategy. Um, I think a spot ETF announcement would, would be the catalyst that we're talking about, which I'm really hopeful for, um, which I've talked about sometimes on Twitter, um, how passive the U.S. stock market is nowadays and how, you know, the default state for stocks is, is kind of, you know, it's not sideways, it's up just because everyone has these recurring checks and these pension funds have these mandates. Um, and if we can get a proper Bitcoin vehicle and get it kind of integrated into that framework, then I think it's, it's you know, it's it's not going to allow us to, to five or six X in a year. I think outside of some kind of probably like, I would, I would say it would kind of have to be a black swan event for Bitcoin to like 10X in a year again, in my opinion. I don't think it would be anything like good for global growth for that to happen. I think it would be some kind of mass exodus from bonds or something because people are, are losing faith in the system. Um, but I think if we were able to get a good spot ETF, that could be a catalyst that would allow Bitcoin to kind of steadily return 10 to 20% a year for decades to come. Makes a lot of sense. And uh, moving on from Bitcoin, are there any kind of trends in other sectors of the crypto market that you see moving out, uh, I guess, playing out moving forward in the next year or even just kind of in a longer term? Like, what are you kind of interested in aside from Bitcoin itself in the in the industry? Sure. Yeah, definitely. Um, I guess NFTs right now are pretty are pretty interesting. I think it's kind of become undeniable that NFTs have been or like are kind of the most successful thing to come out of crypto like ever now. I mean, you had a lot of companies buy Bitcoin for their balance sheet, but the amount of, of big name companies now that are integrating NFTs is just incredible. I mean, I think they've gone mainstream by, by any measure. Um, and what's unfortunate is that it's really hard to, to trade that because, you know, there's so many collections of 10,000 NFTs that get dropped every week. And so, the NFT market cap might have done a 20x over the past, you know, six months. But unless you were holding board apes, you probably didn't do a 20x, even if you were buying NFTs all the time. Um, so there's something, you know, NFTs is something interesting that I'm watching. Um, I think it's it's probably a good idea to try to identify coins that are going to be able to kind of herd the the inflows into that sector rather than specific uh, collections. On top of that, um, I'm pretty excited about uh, Ethereum layer two stuff. I mean, I'm definitely not an Ethereum maxi by any means, but I think it kind of has that critical mass of developers already on it, where I think it's gonna have, I think it's gonna be the main successful chain still in two or three years from now. Um, but that's dependent on it not costing, you know, $60 to, to swap coins, which is just, you know, to people, I have friends who aren't really into crypto and they wanted to, to get set up and buy an altcoin and they want to buy a thousand bucks of an altcoin. And they're like, dude, it costs $200 to buy this on Uniswap. It's, you know, it's unusable. Um, so NFTs, layer two stuff, I'm really excited about, I guess. Um, and uh, yeah, that's, that's, those are probably what I mean, my main two things I'm watching outside of, outside of Bitcoin, Ethereum. Before we wrap up, uh, is there any, I guess, final alpha or advice, whether it's trading advice or just general life advice uh, that you could leave with the with the listeners before you wrap up? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. If you're getting into to crypto and, and you find it interesting, um, 
you know, just like, you know, make a Twitter account and just hop in and start sharing your ideas and what you think and, and join Telegram groups and talk to people. Um, I started doing it like a year ago and, you know, I was able to, I was working at a gym. I was able to leave that, drop out of college and get my dream job at 20 years old, just sharing stuff on Twitter. Um, so, yeah, I mean, if you're into crypto, just just start sharing your ideas and and I bet uh, there's there's more opportunity here than anywhere, it seems like to me. It doesn't matter if we're going into a bear market, there's suddenly more opportunity here than anywhere. Hey man, I, I really uh, enjoyed this conversation thoroughly. Sometimes uh, I have to listen back to some of the conversations to really soak everything in, and this is definitely going to be one of those conversations. So I want to give you a little handle to kind of plug yourself in. Uh, so where can people find you? And then also I, I saw today that you launched a uh, newsletter, if I'm not mistaken, with Material Scientist, who's another guy on Twitter. Um, and so talk to us about uh, what's going on with the newsletter and, and where can people find a, to subscribe to that as well? Yeah, sure. That newsletter is going to be coming out bi-weekly. That's also with uh, Levitas. So I would recommend checking it out on their Twitter page. They'll have the best links to it. Um, and then check me out at bit underscore hedge. And, you know, my DMs are always open if anyone wants to talk. Um, and I'm always kind of looking to meet new people. So bit underscore hedge. Awesome. Thank you so much, man, for the conversation. Really appreciate you uh, coming on. We'll have to get you back on here, maybe like three or six months or something. Totally. Yeah, it was a good time.